So this evening I've been asked to give the Dharma Desana. Uh, sitting here in the temple, I do find it's one of the most powerful, uh, peaceful places in the, on the planet. <laughs> That's just my view. <laughs> <coughs> But I do uh, find this, this particular place uh, very, you know, so mind just goes to stillness so uh, immediately and resonates in a kind of silent stillness. And of course, uh, when you're aware of the silence and stillness, there's a refuge there. It's everywhere, but uh, I noticed like in the Kuti, it's not, it's there, but there's so many other kind of things there, personal things and telephones and things like that around. And then the, you know, the sala is the kitchen and the, the kind of things that happen in salas, meetings and whatnot. Fortunately, this uh, temple's been, we've kind of uh, created this temple just for, really for uh, puja and meditation. But how, how things do stimulate memory and uh, just observing this uh, in this past year, like returning to live at Chithurst after 20 years. Uh, you know, I, I left there 20 years ago uh, to come here. And even though I've been back many times, I've never really lived there. And kind of being living in this, in uh, the Granary, where I lived before, and now, of course, it, the sense of it, it's expanded to a much nicer and bigger place. But also, you have the sense of it being Ajahn Sajito's. <laughs> then the, uh, the memories of Jitters, because that was a powerful period of my life, five years that I, uh, that we, when we first moved, first saw the place and, and then uh, moved there and spent five years, the five years I lived there in a continuous work project, trying to refurbish, rebuild uh, this dilapidated, uh, derelict old house. Just noticing how, they, you know, they, they stimulate memory. And I remember reading Proust's, uh, Marcel Proust's poem, Remembrance of Things Past. Uh, where they dipping the, the the cake in the tea brought back the whole lifetime of memories, and this uh, I've always found that quite quite fascinating. Then uh, in uh, June, July, I went to the States, uh, and uh, I had some time in the Seattle where I was born and I grew up. And so, uh, when I was in Seattle, people were kind enough to take me to see the 
the, uh, the house that I first lived in for the first six years of my life, which uh, has been uh, demolished, and they built a much bigger house, better house than that. But it's the, the memories that would uh, arise, it's being in, in that place, because it's still recognizable. Uh, it's simple things like the, the, uh, the pavements around there, because those are the first six years of my life, then somehow those memories, uh, just uh, something quite ordinary and banal, it wouldn't, you know, wasn't particularly remarkable in any way now, but obviously to somebody awakening to life, growing up and experiencing life for the first time, just remember observing a particular place in the, in the, the sidewalk outside the house where the where I must have had some experience or some strong memory because there was nothing special about it, but uh, it brought back this uh, strong sense of memory of being there, having been there. <coughs> and even though the area has changed a lot, it's been built up. Right, uh, you know, at the time I lived there in the 30s, it was uh, rather you know, there's a lot of woodland around and houses were quite separate and distant from each other. Now they're all cheek by jowl. <coughs> then we went to the house where I, where I spent my, from six to 17. And in that place, the house completely demolished. And all the houses around there have been, uh, uh, Destroyed and they're rebuilding. It's become quite a, it's becoming quite a posh neighborhood, quite an area because it uh, has beautiful views of the Lake Washington and the mountain ranges. So the old places are demolished, and uh, property in Seattle now is very expensive. And people can't afford to live in Seattle anymore. <laughs> <coughs> but observing this place where from 6 to 17 I, my teenage years and the very formative sense of, of being a home, a place where the family lived as I uh, developed from the, from the, in those years uh, so many memories were triggered off just by the, the, uh, the view of the lake and the, and the uh, it's the, the street and the various trees and that that still are there. So it brings back memory, remembrance of things past. And so every, you know, that's how the human mind is. We, we live in memories most of the time. Our world, the worlds we create are worlds that we remember. So this temple, for example, I can remember what was here before. I used to live somewhere over there <laughs> in a tatty little room. <laughs> uh, and uh, 
for about nine years, first nine years of Amravati. And then uh, gradually that these buildings were taken down and this this temple built. But the um, of course the the memories as you get older, they, the the power of meditation, the effect of practicing uh, and developing awareness, uh, of course, has its uh, cleansing effects. You know, one isn't uh, interested <coughs> in memories anymore, or or dependent on them for a sense of oneself, or or sense of belonging, or being anything at all. Because the power of meditation is is really getting outside that restriction and uh, limitation that we create through remembering. <coughs> so, so much of the experience of sitting in this temple over the past, what, six years or so that we've been using it is so much meditation, emptiness, stillness is, uh, and so the, the mind, the, the sense of as soon as entering the temple is, it has this powerful effect of just stopping the thinking mind. Because that's, uh, that's uh, very much how I saw this temple, in his, you know, in his division before we even uh, planned it. So when the architect came and asked me what, <coughs> you know, what I had in mind for this temple, and I, I was being facetious at the time, so I said, uh, well, I want you to build a temple uh, that uh, is so uh, peaceful and quiet that as soon as uh, some uh, stressed out Londoners enter the doors, their mind stops. And he smiled, and he, he didn't seem to think, I think he took me seriously. And I meant it, I was just being facetious, really. And, uh, but actually, that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's what he's done. So recognizing, like in the, the investigation of Dhamma, memory uh, is what? You know, we, we're not interested in the quality or what particular memory is about, but in memory itself. And so in, uh, in Thailand, of course, uh, where I spent the, the first 10 years practicing, 11 years actually, the um, they you know they developing this this using this particular style of the Theravada Buddhism investigating the five khandas and in the way Lung Po Cha taught was very much uh, you know investigating sanya khanda or memory perception and memory and san and sankara and of course in thailand where i where i uh, started practicing meditation the 
the the memories there, you know, were uh, based around uh, the monastic form because most of my my life in Thailand was spent as a bhikkhu, so so there was uh, this kind of emphasis on the particular, you know, on the vinya developing the the uh, the discipline and the uh, monastic ambiance, the 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 the, the kind of mind state, the ideal of, of what um, Buddhist, uh, Buddhism is about is to say for the samana, the monk or the nun, is uh, to live in a way that one uh, recognizes and realizes contentment. And this of course was, I felt very much the that what uh, Lung Po Chao was always pointing at, you know, the, the emphasis he made, he was not particularly, uh, he never kind of emphasized concentration practices or uh, developing jhanas or, or kind of uh, mental states as much as reflecting on the way it is. And uh, the, uh, according to the, the uh, life of a, of a monk. So the life of the monk or the bhikkhu or the samana was one based on, you know, being alms mendicants, being uh, needing very little, being content with what is offered. <coughs> and of course that was an ideal, uh, you know, that I subscribed to, certainly, you know, felt inspired by. But also, uh, the, the amount of discontentment I felt there was, you know, because the mind was, uh, the, the conditioning of, of my mind was very much one of to be discontented. For example, the, my cultural background, social background is one to, to never be content. Nobody ever even suggested contentment as something uh, worthwhile when I was growing up in the, in Seattle. It was just not a word that uh, seemed to have much power or influence or purpose in life. It was always achievement, success, getting ahead, getting somewhere, becoming somebody, uh, all these very aggressive uh, perceptions were, were what I was uh, conditioned by very competitive system, uh, a sense of always trying to improve and, and, and make everything better. And contentment almost seemed like not being a real American. Imagine, imagine being content as a real American. You know, somehow you're, you're not part of the system anymore. You're, you're, you're suspect of being antisocial or, you know, revolutionary or an anarchist or something, an influence that's going against the old capitalist uh, system that the, uh, that particular country so strongly identifies with. A sense of a self was always based on 
you know, comparing, uh, you know, who's better, who's, who runs the fastest, who is the best at baseball, who is uh, the most attractive, who is the prettiest girl in the class, who is, <laughs> who is the best student, and so forth. And these, these were the, the, uh, the memories that I have of, of, of growing up in, in Seattle, Washington. So the, the personality was definitely uh, conditioned through that, you know, the sense of competition and in jealousy, envy, discontentment, uh, feeling of always having to prove something. I say that to be somebody, I had to prove that I am somebody. I had to have qualifications, qualities that, that everybody would envy. I found in myself a desire to, to make other people envious or jealous of me. That this was some kind of good thing to, to do things and say things and act in such a way and have experiences which would arouse envy in others. So then, uh, leaving that world behind to become a, a monk in Thailand was, uh, you know, kind of a going to the opposite end. But of course, the old habits were still there. The old, the sense of a self, the personality operated, uh, and t seemed to, you know, know no limitation or. Uh, in regards to living the, the life of the samana. So, you know, I found myself trying to be a better samana than the rest. You know, trying to be the best bhikkhu or the, the fastest chanti moka chanter. Or, <laughs> or this competitive instinct was still operative. But the point of the, of the uh, life was uh, this reflection, the samana sanya that we have, and the, like the four requisites and the, the purpose and in, in meaning of this life was constantly held up to us as we chanted it every day uh, in the pujas and, and then the reflection on it, you know, the, at which would of course bring up and show show me all the discontentment I could feel, or the competitiveness. So I found that, that in, the, in the beginning years especially, you know, they, there was, a, you know, trying to prove that I was a, a good monk and very strict with the rules and pure and proper and acceptable and admirable because uh, you get a lot of uh, admiration. People praise you a lot if you're very strict and, and uh, very pure and very proper and don't do anything too outrageous and um, fit into the form and uh, perform all the duties properly. You get a lot of praise, and uh, and I like that. But then the mind's condition for that, you know, the the the, the reward and punishment. You 
You get praised if you're good and you get punished if you're bad. You're acceptable and, and uh, admirable if you obey all the rules, and do, say the right things, do all your homework, polite to the teacher and all the rest. And then you are ostracized or punished for breaking the rules, for being rebellious, for being stubborn, uh, for being rude to the teacher. <coughs> so that's the way it is, isn't it? That's the way the world is. The world is, uh, is, is this dualistic experience. So the world is a creation. It's based on sanya sankara. Uh, we create the world. We are the creators of the world that we live in. And we assume that we're all living in the same world, but we're not. We all live in our own world that we create. So, so, just, so this is the world we need to know not try to know about all the worlds that other people create, or s have some kind of idea that there is a world that everybody should belong to, and it's the same world for everybody. Because we all know that's not really the way it is. Living in a community is, uh, you know, makes this very obvious. If you, if you live alone, I suppose you can have, uh, sustain that illusion a little bit better that there's one world and we all agree to it, uh, that kind of illusion. Where, but when you're living in community, the frustrations, irritations that come from living with so many people, of course, is because we live in different worlds. And yet, we're all using the same convention. We've all adopted this, requested this particular form, the Theravada, Pali tradition, Thai forest tradition, uh, Ajahn Chah tradition, and whatever, you know, however you want to describe it. Uh, so the form, the convention, we agree to. But how we hold that, how we use that, how we remember that, how we create that, you know, what that, what the particular details of the form the conventions mean and how they affect us. Now that's where the, the uh, mindfulness is the way. Now mindfulness was another word that I never heard used very much in my uh, education before becoming a monk. And a lot of concentration, you know, you had to concentrate in, in school, you had to learn how to sustain your attention on things and, and uh, develop uh, a very, you know, a retentive memory, and be able to reason, figure things out, think, have ideals about how things should be, how it should be and how it shouldn't be, right and wrong, proper and improper, acceptable, unacceptable, good and evil, heaven and hell. 
<clears throat> so this is all memory, isn't it? Heaven and hell are those those are words. And what that really means when it say heaven, what does that mean to you? You know, in terms of not in terms of a definition from uh, the Oxford Dictionary, but in terms of the immediacy of that, Im when you hear that word. Well, with Theravada Buddhism, uh, so many of the, the party-line Theravadists say, we don't believe in heaven and hell. You know, so we, that's Christianity. <laughs> because we, we uh, you know, we have, we don't, we don't believe in God or in the soul or anything. We've got our own, we believe that there's no soul and no God and no heaven and no hell. Well, that's one way of holding the convention, isn't it? That's one way of, of looking at it. Uh, in terms of belief. Because the uh, cultural conditioning say of my past was one of be believing or disbelieving. Well, if it was reasonable, logical, and provable, then it well, must be true. And if you couldn't prove it, if it was irrational, illogical, then it was nonsense or wrong or evil. So this is what we call dualism, or where there's this structure of thought, isn't it? The thinking process is, its purpose is to discriminate, compare, differentiate. Its function is, is for that. Now, when, we, when we get uh, aligned with our thinking process, when that's how we experience life through thought, then we are caught in that dualistic structure. Our experience of life is always based on right and wrong, good and bad. So what is good, you know, is desirable, and what is bad is undesirable. Right, you should be right, and, and you shouldn't be wrong. Things should be, uh, people should be good, honorable, honest, Worthy, respectable, moral. They shouldn't be immoral, heedless, selfish, mean and nasty. And so the, this is how the thinking mind works, this mind does. Exploring that, exploring thought. You know, observing thinking rather than just thinking about thinking. Or trying to figure out Buddha Dhamma just on an intellectual level. So because there's no concept for God in the same way there is in theistic religions such as Christianity, then, then we say we don't believe in God. But what does that really mean, we don't believe in God? And what does the word God mean? And when I say the word God, what, how does that affect you right now? You know, what is the, if some people would, uh, uh, you know, well, we don't, we don't believe in God. 
We don't have a God. We're Buddhists. Because the way we, we that word, uh, we hold that word, the meaning of that word is a certain way. It's a Christian concept. Jewish concept. And we're not Christian or Jewish, so we're Buddhists. So, and, and God is, somebody, is something or somebody you believe in. You've got to believe in God if you're a Christian. And if you don't believe in God, you're an atheist. Now you get stuck in there polarizing these in your mind. You know, this, how you see yourself, isn't it, is, is usually in these extreme terms. Your personality, your sense of self-worth. Uh, depends on your thinking, on your memory. So thinking cannot be trusted. It's something that, uh, you know, I'm not against thinking. I'm, I like to think and I appreciate the ability to think, but as an end in itself, it only takes you to suffering. You cannot be liberated, you cannot be enlightened through thinking, through grasping thoughts or memories. So then the mind, we mustn't think anymore then. I'm all against, Ajahn Sumedho's totally against thinking. And we've got to stop it. Stop thinking. Because that's the opposite. You know, if I say, if I'm criticizing thinking or, showing, or pointing out its, its uh, shortcomings or its inadequacies, then it sounds like an attack, like I'm against it. But that's not what I'm saying. Uh, I'm pointing to, to the investigating, the thinking process, rather than trying to keep thinking about thinking or trying to figure out Buddha Dhamma with thoughts, with ideas, concepts, and just adopt a whole lot of Buddhist concepts and, and reject the Christian Jewish ones, and then, then align ourselves with Buddhism and, uh, and uh, have contempt or, uh, or criticism towards Christianity, we're still caught in the same ignorance. And we're still, you know, still bound to the limitation of the five khandhas. We're still in that realm of samsara. So, like with mindfulness, awareness, then this, is, this awareness is not thinking anymore. It, it allows thinking, but it's not a thought. And I was uh, recently take, uh, I acquired this book on the history of zero. Very interesting book. <coughs> and. Zero actually was not 
an acceptable concept in Western civilization till almost 500 years ago. Like the Romans never had zero, nor the Egyptians. Uh, they, uh, they began zero, they traced it back to the Sumerians, which were very early. And then the zero traveled to India, where they adopted it immediately. So then in India, the Arabs picked it up from the Indians, and we acquired our Arab numerals one, two, three, four, through the through the Arabs. And in the book, I don't, you know, this is a book, so it's somebody's opinion. Again, so I'm quite willing to be corrected, but but the um, the implication is that, like, um, according to the Catholic Church at, at, uh, in, the, in those years, zero was even considered evil. <laughs> because it was nothing. You know, it was like annihilation. And so, uh, you know, they, they and the uh, Egyptians developed geometry without zero. So, I mean, there was a lot of cleverness and, and um, you know, ability to, to manipulate uh, uh, numbers without zero. But after a while, it, it, it became impossible. You know, one had to, had to admit this, which isn't anything at all, nothing. Zero. But of course the word zero is another word, isn't it? And so we, we can see it as an abstract. And so we can, you know, we can abstract zero and, and use it. And we know how to you know, develop, you know, calculus and so forth with uh, uh, all kinds of advanced forms of mathematics. Uh, and of course zero now is just you know, part of the cultural conditioning. But the reality of zero at this very moment is what? Nothing at this very moment. So with mindfulness, where we're, this is the, the invitation of the Lord Buddha to wake up and pay attention to the way it is. Now time, the perception of time. Many of you, you know, who've been practicing uh, uh, in many years, now experiencing timelessness. And notice how with the more mindful you, you, and the more connected you are with awareness, the time, uh, the sense of time is absent. To, for time to, to, to create time again, we have to think. What time is it? What day is this? What month? What year? And what time will we meet tomorrow? And when will we have our planning committee meeting? And the Katina at Harnham on Sunday? And we plan a whole life ahead, you know, of, of diaries and uh, trying to, to, you know, arrange our lives because 
the perception of time is, is our reality, is what we subscribe to as the real world. But in awareness at this present moment, if you stop thinking, but you have to stop thinking, you can't just suppress thought, you have to let go of thinking. So this is the, the what we call, you know, developing uh, pawana, it's pawana, it's meditation, letting go of the conditioned realm, not annihilating it, because it's, that would be just trying to annihilate is, is the same problem. Annihilation is, is, the, is, the, is, the, is logical, but it's not the way things really are. So zero, nothing at this moment is the reality of mindfulness. Now when I say this, I'm pointing to you know, in, in, in at this very moment, as I'm sitting here, thinking process stops. I'm quite relaxed and open and receptive, so I'm not trying to shut you out. I don't have to close my eyes, plug up my ears, or go away from here, you know, to a cave or some place where nothing impinges on me but just through recognizing a natural state that I don't create. It's not dependent on, on conditions supporting its reality. It's real, it's a fact. It's nothing, not a creation, not an ideal, not a, an assumption, not a belief. Now this is, this is the reality of zero. And then in, as you recognize this, <coughs> the reality of this, then you have perspective on the personality, the ego, the conditioning, the memories, your own body, uh, how it feels, it's it's pleasure, pain, neutral feelings, emotional conditions that you're experiencing, happy, sad, elated, depressed, bored, frightened, confused, worried, envious, jealous, whatever the emotions might be, you know, what, how they, uh, you might recognize in the present. These are the five conducts operating, but your re the relationship to them is of awareness. So awareness allows the five conducts. Not, not a rejection or criticism of any of, of anything, but a, the ability that each one of us has, a natural ability to receive this moment as it is. being in this very spot here, ground zero.
And when I point to ground zero, I'm not pointing to the temple. <laughs> but in each one of us, wherever you, your physical body is at this moment, with the awareness, that's it. And so this is uh, to recognize this. It's not something you find, you know, it's not, you can't find it as an object, you know, it's not like a, the, the pillow or the carpet or somebody, the monks or the nuns, you're not looking for anything. It's recognizing this, this is natural state of being. And so when the Buddha gave his first sermon, this was using suffering, dukkha, as a skillful means to turn to, to recognize, to open to, to understand. Because as long as there's ignorance of this reality, then our lives are the experience of suffering. So when we, when we create our own worlds out of ignorance, out of not understanding the Four Noble Truths, without understanding the truth, having no knowledge of that truth, then the world we create is always is the world of suffering, of something lacking, missing, inadequate. And that's just the way it is because the conditioned realm is that way. It's not, it's not meant to be a refuge. It's, it's nature's change, birth and death, rising, ceasing. So with the uh, dependent origination, Paticca Samupada, the Buddha, this teaching of Avicca Bhajaya Sankara begins with this it's, a, it's following this kind of brilliant meditation. And with Avicca as the beginning, we start from Avicca, I am this person, this world is, my world is the real world and so forth. This assumption. Then this affects the whole mental, physical experience that we're having at this moment. The body, the mind, the emotions, memories, consciousness are affected by that avicca. So avicca means ignorance of the Dhamma, not being awake, not having looked into, not having recognized the truth, then then the world we create is a world of avicca. And as you develop awareness of, through Paticca Samupada, it always ends up as suffering. <laughs> Old age, dharamaranang soka parite tomanasa upayasa. Old age, sickness, death, grief, sorrow, anguish, and despair. So the Paticca Samupada is, is another 
reflective teaching that I found very useful, you know, the skillful way of exploring this, to see, to test it out. You know, coming from I am this Ajahn Sumedho as a, as a, as a, out of a vicha, I am this person, then that affects the, 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 what is it, bhajaya sankara, sankara bhajaya vinyana. So the consciousness is affected, you know, in consciousness this whole realm of ignorance and suffering arises. And so I become a person and the world I create is dependent. If I'm happy, uh, my happiness depends on conditions supporting happiness. As a person, you know, as a personality, for me to be happy, I have to have supportive conditions for happiness. Peace and friendship and and uh, trust and I need, uh, you know, to be appreciated. I need respect, praise, love. I have my rights and, and uh, you know, when I don't have these, then I feel unhappy. So unhappiness is dependent also, isn't it? If, if what I want and need to make me feel happy are not present, then I'm unhappy. So this is, you know, so that, and how you can create a world and demand that your own creation support your happiness for a lifetime, that is madness. <laughs> because that's not the way it is. is it? Human life, in a human lifetime, you know, one human lifetime, say from the hour you're born to the, if you last a hundred years, is all about loss, really. We have to lose everything in the end. You know, we, what we get, whatever we gain, whatever we depend on, we eventually lose it. It's about change. And change doesn't mean it gets better and better, better and better, better and better, does it? Change is about arising and ceasing. And so that's why we in investigate that in Nietzsche, the Pesa and Kara Nietzsche, because that all conditions are impermanent. Just so you, that it begins to sink in after a while that all conditions are impermanent, even though Logically, we can agree to that. We may not actually recognize that reality, especially in the subtler assumptions that we might hold about ourselves and the world that we live in. So then the, the awakened state, so that's what Buddha means, awakened consciousness. The, it's about you and me, human beings, with human karmas, whatever they might be, 
but awake. And that means, you know, that to be awake, then let's, we, we're letting go of the avicca or the ignorance. So then wisdom begins to, we begin to see and learn through wisdom rather than through conditioning uh, about good and bad, right and wrong, reason, logic, and so forth. Wisdom is the ability to discern, knowing things as they are, knowing the truth of the way it is. It's knowing, because this is the, what we're experiencing at this very moment, knowing, being a, a, uh, a separate entity, a physical human body that's conscious, And consciousness is knowing. And so it's a direct knowing. It's not knowing about consciousness or what Jung said about consciousness or Freud or anyone else about what modern scientists, psychologists and so forth say about consciousness. It's not knowing about psychology, but it's knowing in this very direct way, the way it is. So when we investigate the five khandhas, you know, this is, this is not to, to form some attachment to the idea of five khandhas is what we have to do, but it's, this is an expedient teaching in order to simplify everything, to see things in, in rather than uh, having to wade through the infinite varieties of conditioned phenomena from its most subtle to its most coarse and all the variations, uh, permutations of, that conditions go through. We, we just need to really observe one condition quite well to, to be able to extrapolate from that. So like Anapanasati is a good one, isn't it? It arises and ceases. You inhale, you exhale. And it's easy enough to see, you know, we're all breathing and um, it's quite ordinary physiological function that isn't uh, fraught with a lot of emotion and, uh, and personal identity or vanity. You know, then we breathe in, breathe out. So, just investigating, you know, the, in, when, when I started uh, Anapanasati, you know, observe the beginning of the inhalation, the middle, the end, the beginning of the exhalation, the middle, the end, the way they instruct you in the scripture. What is this really saying? Is, you know, you're really observe, taking close look, not just just, uh, you know, think you understand breathing because you're breathing, but uh, taking this one condition that's happening right now and exploring it. So what I learned through, through watching my breath, through observing, meditating on the breath, was the inhalation has a beginning and it has an ending. It reaches a peak. 
There's a point I can't breathe, I can't inhale anymore. That is a peak moment. That is the peak. You can't keep, you can't go beyond that. And then that conditions the exhalation. That pattern, then the exhalation has a beginning and then it has an ending where you can't exhale anymore and you have to breathe in again. Now, even though that sounds banal and kind of, well, of course we all know that, have you really, you know, explored that? Not in terms of just the breath is, as the, you know, the thing that you're exploring, but, but as the basic pattern of conditioned phenomena. You know, whether it's a thought, an emotion, uh, a universal system, Rock of Gibraltar, Mount Everest, the sun and moon, or just the most minute conditions that we can't even recognize in, the, in human consciousness. The fluctuations and changing <coughs> Uh, incredible uh, flow of energies and that that we experience. But we don't need to to go into the uh, macro and uh, the micro the macrocosm or the microcosm, but uh, just the mundane, banal reality of breathing gives you gives you that insight. So from that, you can extrapolate. All conditions are impermanent. But that doesn't mean you just take it for granted that they are. You know, you've established a, 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 an, an insight into conditioned phenomena, its impermanence. When I look back on, you know, a lifetime of memories, what I remember are peak moments. I don't remember the beginning or the middle. I usually remember the, the peak and then from that peak you can't go beyond it and then it starts going the other way. <coughs> but the thing is because we remember peak moments, that creates a desire to have peak moments. At least it does in me. Because if the peak moments, you know, the happiness, when I was really happy, when I was successful, when, uh, and, and I also remember the, the nadir, the depths of failure and despair, the humiliation, the rejection. But that's another peak moment at the bottom, isn't it? It's a, Zenith and the Nadir, where they, where we tend to remember. So memory then, out of ignorance, out of avicca, we have memories and, and that creates desire. We desire not to suffer anymore in the hell realms, in the failures and misery and depression and rejections and 
failures of life makes us want to have success, to be admired, to be respected, to be appreciated, to be healthy and beautiful and so forth, <laughs> have excitement, wonderful adventures and romances and, and interesting lifestyle. Because the other, as we remember, is all, it's either boring, uh, pointless, depressing, negative. So many of our, many of us live our, have lived our lives to always seek these peak moments, to renew them over and over again. Of course, as you get older, you become weary of it. When you're younger, you still think you can do it. That maybe you might get a peak moment that you can keep. <laughs> and stay there forever would be is the dream wouldn't it be nice if so the Buddha were pointed to the way things are the, the, the Dhamma the truth of the way it is and he's not telling you he's not defining truth or telling you what, what kind of truth you should find or believe in, but encouraging you to find, to recognize, to awaken, to realize truth for yourself. Now zero is not a peak moment. So even though, it, it, that's why we don't notice it, it's just not noticeable it doesn't stand out. It's not like inspiration or depression. It has no quality that you can grasp and no memory. So that's, that's mindfulness then. Mindfulness then is the path to the deathless. It's the, you know, this is, this is zero is here and now. Non-grasping, alert, attentive. These are the words. If you try to be alert, that's not it. You know, I'm trying to be mindful. Because then you're conceiving mindfulness and trying to become mindful. So this is where I keep emphasizing trusting your intuitive sense rather than, than getting intimidated by ideas about you should be mindful and all that kind of thing that you can, you can grasp the, the monastic life and the Theravada scripture and everything and, and make it into another thing you're going to fail at. Another failure. I'm no good at meditation, can't meditate, mind wanders. How many of you feel like that? <laughs> so you, you know, you, you, you're grasping what you think is the Dhamma 
and you're going to fail. It's going to take you to suffering. Because of the ignorance and the grasping of the idea of Dhamma, of, the, of a memory of Dhamma, of a view of Dhamma. So that's why I emphasize this, this sense of trusting the immediacy of awareness, here and now, attentiveness, without effort, without force, without willfulness. It's not to will and make yourself mindful, but to recognize a sense of relaxing, opening, receiving, listening. And whatever your mind's doing is okay. You know, so if it's confused and wanders and your emotions are this way and that, this is not a critical practice. You're not saying, you know, what should or shouldn't be or, or, or you know, criticizing yourself for having these kind of thoughts or these kind of emotional reactions. Your relationship to them is, is awareness, which is receptive, allowing them to be what they are. Because there's a knowing. They are what they are at this present moment. And just like your inhalation, exhalation, they arise, they reach their peak, and they cease. There's cessation. You're allowing condition phenomena to cease without recreating it. You're letting what arises ceases according to its nature rather than you trying to make it cease if you don't like it or if you like it trying to keep it forever because you can't do that. It's impossible. If you are aware, if there's sati and panya operating So this is a reflection. Uh, I really appreciate this, uh, this life I've lived and this teaching. You know, like Four Noble Truths, the Paticca Samuppada, all these things are just so... I mean, it's like very skillful means we have available for us. if they're used properly. You know, they're not just head trips or doctrines or, you know, you can grasp them or reject them and, and, uh, and whatever, you know, but, but, that, but they're to be used. They're, they're for encouragement, for, for observ observation. So that you actually, if you use these, these conventions, these Theravada conventions, actually, you know, <laughs> you can actually prove it to yourself. You, can, you realize and recognize Dhamma, the reality of Dhamma, and know for sure that this is it. There's no, not, a, you know, not, not any question or doubt left 
when you know in this direct way. To doubt it, and you have to start thinking about it. And then your thinking process will go back into, you know, the thinking that comes out of ignorance. Now there's thinking that comes out of awareness. So it's not a matter that you don't think anymore, but like the, the thinking then is, is much more using thought skillfully rather than just being caught and bound and blinded by your thinking habits, your emotional habits. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening.